enemies of the redeemed adored, assembled from all times and places of thy dominion. We praise thee for the saints of Britain who stand before thee, and for the many lamps their holiness hath lit. And we beseech thee that we also may be numbered at last with them that have loved thy will and declared thy righteousness to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome back to this second session in our ongoing study of the history of the Anglican tradition. We started last week by talking about the fact that Christianity and the church in England, contrary to popular belief, did not actually begin with Henry VIII and his marital problems, Uh, that it existed a considerable amount of time before then, as a matter of fact, that Christianity in England had been a going concern, really, for centuries. Uh, From the earliest days, really, of the church's history, there had been believers in what was commonly referred to by the Romans as Britain. The faith had probably been brought there by Roman soldiers. Britain, of course, England, what is now modern-day England, was certainly part of the Roman Empire in those early days. I even pointed out that there was some speculation that Pontius Pilate, who presided over the trial and death of Jesus, had been a soldier serving in the Roman army in Britain at one time. And we do know that many Roman soldiers following the resurrection of the Lord were converted to the faith. And perhaps as they were posted in England and other places, they took that faith with them. So actually Christianity had been there for a very early time in what was commonly referred to by the Romans as British territory or Britain. We also know that there was a strong presence in Ireland Uh, that there were great monasteries there, and by the 500s there was already an elaborate system of church governance, bishops, priests, and deacons. And it was missionaries from those great monasteries, people who were the heirs of the tradition of St. Patrick and others, who took the gospel back across the Irish Sea into areas which we now refer to as England. So Christianity had been there from the earliest days, long before Henry VIII was even a twinkle in anybody's eye. But we do note that in 597, there was a young man, an Italian priest, as a matter of fact, by the name of Augustine, who was sent by order of the Pope, Gregory the Great, to evangelize the people of England, commonly referred to as the Angles. You've heard of the Anglos and the Saxons, or the Angles and the Saxons. And he was sent there to evangelize those people. Actually, Augustine and this is not to be confused with Augustine of Hippo, the North African theologian and father of the church, but instead we're talking about another Augustine, Augustine of Canterbury. He was actually sent to a small kingdom that was led by a king, actually a tribal chieftain by the name of Ethelbert. And he was sent to evangelize Ethelbert's small kingdom in the southeastern portion of England in an area known as Kent. Now, if you've been to Canterbury today... You've been to that area. That's where Augustine was sent, really, to evangelize those people in particular and this tribal chieftain. It was done, really, for political reasons. But Augustine was successful in doing that. He did evangelize those people. And what he did is he infused them with a missionary spirit, the same missionary spirit that had brought the gospel to the British Isles in the first place. And so they began to preach the gospel, not only there in Kent, but once that area had been evangelized in other regions as well. And as a consequence, the church began to grow quite rapidly, as a matter of fact, in what we would call the British Isles 
today. Now, the arrival of St. Augustine of Canterbury to that area of England was significant, not because he was bringing the gospel there for the very first time. We said there was already a Christian presence. There had been a Christian presence for almost 300 years by the time that he arrived. But what he did do is bring order and structure to the church. Because Christianity in England up to that point had been pretty much loosey-goosey, not so much in terms of theology, but in terms of structure. There were all kinds of overlapping jurisdictions, for example. One bishop claiming to have authority over one section and another bishop having, claiming to have authority over the same section and so forth. They celebrated the great feasts of the church, the Lord's birth, for example, his resurrection, the saints' days and so forth. But they did it according to their own calendars. Very similar situation to what we have today between the western and the eastern parts of the church. We celebrate Christmas on December the 25th. And the Eastern Orthodox celebrated what? Almost two weeks later. So it was a similar situation that you had there in Britain. Uh, the English Channel is not a formidable obstacle today. You can get on a train in London and actually go under the English Channel and arrive at Paris. It's quite remarkable. I've actually done it. Not much to see, but it's nevertheless an interesting journey. But in those days, the English Channel was a formidable obstacle. And as a consequence, the church in the British Isles was pretty much doing its own thing, whereas the church on the continent was doing its own thing. But with the arrival of Augustine of Canterbury, structure and order was brought to the church. And eventually, those Christians in Britain would ally themselves with the Roman church, with the church in Rome. This took place at what was known as the Synod of Whitby. And from that point forward, the church in England took on a decidedly Latin flavor, but not entirely. Again, they were separated from the continent, and they pretty much did their own thing. And that would have a trickle-down effect through the centuries, right up to the time of the Middle Ages. So we said last week that the English church, uh, about the time of the Middle Ages, while it was under the jurisdiction of the papal see, was nevertheless different. It was certainly historic. It had been around for a very long time. We said from the earliest days, really, of the Christian church. It was apostolic. It certainly had bishops, those who were traditions of the great apostles. They stood for the great traditions of the church. They, they expressed themselves in the great creeds of the church. They were Catholic in the sense that they were part of the universal church. They were connected with the church in Rome. But they were unique. They were different. There was a different flavor to the church in England than you would have found in any of the churches on the continent. And as I said, that's going to have a trickle-down effect as we get to the area or the region known as the Middle Ages. Now, this particular point in history is sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages. Somebody just pointed out to me a book has been published. It's entitled The Light Ages. Uh, which takes a different view of the Middle Ages. We oftentimes think of the Middle Ages as a period of great darkness and ignorance. But actually, that was not the case. Uh, the Middle Ages were a time of great intellectual ferment. It was in the Middle Ages that some of the greatest works of art were produced. Certainly, uh, this was a time of great intellectual ferment. The great universities that we think of in England, places like Oxford and Cambridge and so forth, those universities were founded in the Middle Ages. 
So these are not Enlightenment institutions. These are institutions that have been in existence in the Middle Ages. There were great scholars that were studying and teaching in those institutions. There were great thinkers who appeared on the scene in the Middle Ages. Some of the greatest intellectuals in the history of the church, people like Thomas Aquinas, for example, existed in the Middle Ages. Thomas Aquinas is still studied in, by theologians today and still regarded as one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the West. It was a time in which science flourished as well. Some of the first magnifying glasses, as a matter of fact. We can all be grateful for those, those of us. As we age, we discover that we need the cheaters. We can all be thankful for that because many of these things were invented in the Middle Ages. And as I said, the church had some great lights, not only Thomas Aquinas, but people like Anselm, who would become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Anselm of Canterbury and would go on to write a famous theological treatise entitled Curdeus Homo, Why Did God Become a Man? In which he talked about the doctrine of the atonement, the message of Christ's sacrifice. So, contrary to popular belief, the medieval period was actually, in many respects, the best of times. It was an age of light. But, of course, there's a flip side to that coin, isn't there? It was the best of times, but it was also what? Well, it was the worst of times, absolutely. It was the worst of times, particularly for the church, because as the church grew it started to sort of drift. You, you know how this happens with institutions. They can start off small and simple, and they have a very clear mission. You think about things like Apple or Amazon. These were companies that started off small, but they are not small today. They have grown into these gigantic things that sometimes are a threat to others. Well, that's exactly what was happening in the church. As the church grew... It began to accrue all of these traditions and practices. I call them vines and tendrils of tradition that begin to obscure the earlier mission of the church. And that would become a great problem. This was an age of spiritual and moral bankruptcy. The buying and selling of salvation, for example, as we will see. It was a time of financial malfeasance in the church. Bishops became powerful people. Did you ever notice of a procession in church? Who comes last in the procession? Normally the celebrant or the priest, unless somebody else is here. Now, if the bishop is here, he comes where in the procession? Last. And he comes last in the procession. Why? Because most people think he's the closest to God. You've never met a bishop, apparently. So, <laughs> but the assumption is that, oh, yes, it's because they're the closest to God or they're the most important person. Did you know that the processions that we have in church actually come from a Roman tradition? When a Roman emperor would go out and win a great battle, he would ride into the capital, mounted on a steed, and there would be a procession, a grand procession. And who came first at the beginning of the procession? The most important person, the emperor. And everybody that followed was in descending importance. Who came last at the end of the procession? Condemned prisoners, captives. That's where our procession comes from today in church. Which means that the most important person in the procession is not the bishop. 
Because he's at the end, like a condemned prisoner. The most important person comes at the beginning. And he carries the cross. The crucifer is the most important person in the procession. The priest comes last because the priest is to be the servant of all. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you would be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must become the servant of all. You're going to hear a little bit about ambition in the sermon today. Justin's going to address this very subject. And so bishops were not supposed to be the most important people. They were supposed to be the least important people. They were supposed to be the servants of all. But by the Middle Ages, everything had been turned on its head. These men had accrued great power, great authority, great money. They had become princes of the church. So the Middle Ages was a time of great intellectual ferment, but it was also a time of spiritual and moral bankruptcy. And who is the man who called the church out on this? Who called the church to reform? No. That was a trick question. (laughs) 200 years before Luther, Calvin, and Cranmer, there was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he was not on the continent. He was in England, crying out for reform teaching about reform, writing about reform, and getting in trouble for it. And that man's name was, you've heard of him, even if you don't recognize him, his name was John Wycliffe. Now I say you've heard of him because you've heard of the Wycliffe Bible translators. They are named for John Wycliffe. Almost 200 years before Martin Luther nailed those theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral on October 31st, sparking what we call the Protestant Reformation, this man in England was calling out the church and calling out the leadership of the church for the fact that they had drifted far afield of the early mission and spirit of the apostles. John Wycliffe. The legacy of John Wycliffe is significant. He lived 1320 to 1384, 64 years. But he accomplished a great deal in that time period. And even though he would die, as I said, long before Luther and others appeared on the scene, nevertheless, his influence would be felt. He is sometimes referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. And he was one of us. So Lutherans take that. What did John Wycliffe teach that was different from what the church was teaching? Well, there were a number of things. First of all, he distinguished between what was known as the visible and the invisible church. Now, this wasn't an idea that he had. He read through the New Testament, and that's something, by the way, that many of the leaders of the church were not doing. But John Wycliffe was studying the Bible. He was studying the Word of God, and as a scholar, he had access to the Scriptures. Of course, there were many people in this time period who were ignorant, and could not read, they could not write. Wycliffe was not one of them. He was a a scholar, he was an Oxford don. And so he was reading the scriptures, and he noticed that there was a distinction in the scripture between what we call the visible church, that is, the body that is gathered every single Sunday for worship, and the invisible church, which are those whose hearts have actually been transformed. It's the same distinction that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount, if you think about it, 
What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of God. You'll know them by their fruit. By their fruit. Jesus made that distinction. Well, that's exactly what Wycliffe recognized. He said there were many people who would attend church on a daily basis. They would go to Mass. They would make their confessions. They would do their acts of penance. But their hearts had never really been transformed. They were simply going through the motions. It's what James talks about when he says that they have a faith, but it's not a living faith. They may believe that Jesus is Lord, but they've never actually believed on him as Lord. They have the faith of the demons. And Wycliffe was calling people out for that. And some of the people that he was calling out were powerful and influential people. How do you think that went over? Not very well. He advocated for a strong doctrine of predestination and election. Now we think that that's a That's a Presbyterian idea. You know, those Presbyterians are so gloomy. That's what they believe in, predestination and election. But actually, Wycliffe discovered that this was a biblical doctrine. It's pretty hard to read the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, which says we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead and not understand something about election. Even more so if you read chapters 9 through 11 of Paul's epistle to the Romans and not understand that there's something about election. Or for that matter, go back to the Old Testament and realize that God chose Abraham or God chose the Jews. He elected them. He predestined them. Not because of anything they had done. Now, this was a doctrine that Paul had taught, Augustine, the great Augustine had taught, but it was something that had been completely lost. I once had a professor in seminary who was teaching a class on Romans, and this is what he said. He said, even if you don't like it, if you do not have a doctrine of predestination and election, some understanding of that doctrine, he said, you're not really being biblical. John Wycliffe was the one who advocated for a strong doctrine of predestination and election. Here's the thing that got him into a lot of trouble. He insisted that the Pope had no authority on earth to remit sin. That Jesus Christ alone had the power to remit sin. Who did the Pope think he was? Now this, as I said, is 150 years, 200 years before Luther goes anywhere or does anything. John Wycliffe was the one who was arguing for this. Furthermore, he argued that the Bible alone was the ultimate authority for the church, not the magisterium. The Word of God. And because the Word of God was of the utmost importance, he argued that it ought to be available to every single person. In those days, the only people that had access to the Scripture and the only people that were permitted to teach the Scriptures were the clergy. Why? Because the church assumed that the laity were too ignorant to understand the great things of the faith. In spite of the fact that in today's gospel lesson, Jesus says that we have to become like a little child. In other words, the message of the gospel is simple. Now, it's not simplistic, but it is simple. And yet the church denied the people of God access to God's word. It could only come to you via the mouths of the priests, and oftentimes they were worse than the laity. So he argued that the Bible was the ultimate authority for the church, and then he took it upon himself to translate the Bible into English. Now, 
he was not a Greek or Hebrew scholar. And to be honest with you, the ancient manuscripts were not available at this point in history. Be the result of the Renaissance that Greek and Hebrew would suddenly find its way into scholastic pursuits. But he did translate it out of the Latin. And so the Bible, for the very first time, was translated into the vulgar tongue, into the common tongue, by John Wycliffe. He insisted that all authority, not just the church's authority, but civil authority as well, rested in God. That even the state was subject, ultimately, to the authority of the Lord. Now, some of this may not seem too drastic to you. That's because we have access to the scriptures, and we've read the Apostle Paul, but people had never heard this sort of thing before, and Wycliffe was. He was the first to recognize the doctrine of justification by faith. That is to say that you and I come into a right relationship with God, not on the basis of anything that we do, but on the basis of what God has done on our behalf, and we simply receive that by faith. There's nothing we have to do. It's not about going to confession, being given works of penance, things you have to do. It's not about going on pilgrimages. It's not about praying to the saints. It's about trust in Christ. He didn't work this out as fully as Martin Luther, but nevertheless, he was the first to really rediscover this. Something that had been taught as a bedrock of the faith by the Apostle Paul and by others. And somehow, as I said, the vines and tendrils of tradition had obscured all of that. And John Wycliffe began to argue for these things. He condemned the doctrine of transubstantiation. You know what the doctrine of transubstantiation is? It has to do with the Eucharist. It is the belief that when you and I take the bread, take the wine, we are actually physically feeding on Jesus' body. That was the teaching of the medieval church, that every time the priest raised the host, bells would go off, a transformation would take place, and though these things were under the guise of bread and wine, these elements actually become the body and blood of Christ. Now, the problem in the Middle Ages with that doctrine is that people then began to look at the Eucharist as though it was something magical, as a talisman. Sometimes people would be given the bread, and they would steal it away in their pocket and take it home because it would, it would protect the house, it was believed. And so the church began, first of all, to insist that the Eucharist be placed not in the hands, but on the tongue. And furthermore, because the church believed that this was actually the blood of Christ, if you drop the body, you could pick it up. But what happens if you spill the wine? Oh, my goodness, it's, it's gone forever. It's lost forever. And therefore, the laity were denied to have communion in both kinds. Have you missed communion in both kinds, some of you? Well, imagine having never had access to the wine, which symbolizes Christ's blood shed on our behalf. Well, as Wycliffe studied the scriptures, he came to the realization that this notion of transubstantiation in the words of what we call the prayer book today overthrew the nature of a sacrament. Jesus did say, this is my body. He also said what? Take this in remembrance. And so he argued against the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, now he's going to the heart of some things here. He's attacking the authority of the Pope. He's insisting upon the authority of the Scripture. He's attacking the doctrine of transubstantiation, the Eucharist, which was the primary form of worship in the medieval church. They didn't have morning prayer. You had the Mass. 
was the most important thing. When the priest was ordained, he was ordained not to preach. Now, some of you may rejoice in that, but, but that's not what he was ordained for. He was ordained to celebrate the Mass, to hear confessions, to give absolution, and to assign acts of penance. That's the job of a priest. And all of a sudden, Wycliffe is attacking all of those things. He sparked what became known as the Lollard Movement. Now, this is a movement that's going to last for over three centuries, really. The 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. The Lollard Movement was basically a movement of laity who began to question the authority of the papacy. Lollard was really an insult. It was a name that was ascribed to somebody who was ignorant, uneducated, unschooled. In the same way that that the the term redneck is not a compliment. It's meant to be an insult to somebody. If somebody calls you a redneck, that's not generally a compliment to you. Well, that's what the Lollards were. It was an insult to them. And yet this movement would gain control and power and influence. And eventually that influence would skip over the English Channel and make its way to the continent. John Wycliffe would be the primary influence on the great Bohemian or Czechoslovakian reformer by the name of John Huss. The Hussites were the heirs of the Lollard movement, which was started by John Wycliffe. So, isn't it interesting that centuries before Luther, there were those in the English church who were calling for reform. That's part of our tradition, you see. So don't let the Luthers tell, Lutherans tell you that they're the ones that started it all. We, we were there centuries before. But in the age following Wycliffe, until the 16th century, other things were happening in the world that would help to transform the church. And one of the things that was happening was the Renaissance. Now, as you know, that word Renaissance means basically rebirth. I said to you last week that there was the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. And the emperor moved the entire headquarters of the empire over to the east, where the Roman Empire in Constantinople uh, would continue to flourish for another thousand years. But eventually the eastern part of the empire would also fall in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. This was the age of the great crusades, the crusaders. The crusaders would return And when the eastern part of the Roman Empire collapsed, what happened was that all of the intellectuals in the east, you see, the west and the east were pretty much living separate from each other. Now, they knew that each other existed, but but they never really had any sort of formal going back and forth. And so the western academy was very different. They didn't realize that there was a whole other tradition of intellectual endeavor in the east. There were scholars over in the east who were actually reading from the original sources. As I said, when Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, he did it from what? From the Vulgate, from St. Jerome's Latin translation. Because Latin was the language of the western part of the empire. Latin was the language of the church. In fact, that was the, the language of the Roman Catholic Church right up until the 1960s. You still went and had... That's the reason I'm a Protestant. I actually had a grandmother who, she married a Roman Catholic, 
And he wanted the children raised Catholic, and so they went to Mass. She told me this on one occasion. She said, we took the kids to Mass, and she said, and I told him I'd give it a try because I thought the whole family ought to go to church together. She said, he took me to Christmas Eve Mass because he really wanted to impress me. And, you know, Christmas Eve Mass, Midnight Mass, that's a very impressive thing. She said, I looked around, and everybody had a missile in their hand. And the priest was saying everything in Latin. And I noticed that every single person around me was on a different page. They didn't have a clue as to what was being said. Well, that was the case right up until the 1960s. But the New Testament's not written in Latin, is it? The New Testament was written in what? Greek. And the Old Testament wasn't written in Latin. It was written in what? Hebrew. But nobody in the West spoke or read Hebrew and Greek. But people in the East did. In fact, for some of them, that was their native tongue. And so with the collapse of the Eastern Empire, with the collapse of the empire in Constantinople, all of a sudden there were these people who were fleeing the Ottoman Turks and coming to the West to the only other place where Christianity flourished. And they brought with them this knowledge of Greek, this knowledge of Hebrew. They brought advances in mathematics. The reason why we use Arabic numerals, the reason why we can do algebra today is because of what was happening in the East, not in the West. This was also the first information age. The invention of the printing press took place in 1450. You've heard of the Gutenberg Bible. The first thing that was printed on that press, the Gutenberg Bible in 1450, So you had a great dissemination of information. It was the first information age as opposed to ours. Now, we have it instantaneously. But you have to imagine to be able to mass produce works, scholarly works. This was something that was unique. If you wanted to read a manuscript, you had to go to some obscure monastery and you had to dig through it and you had to read it. And that was the only copy that was available. Now, all of a sudden, these things, including the Bible, can be mass produced. There was an emphasis on literacy for all people. Because these works were now readily available, it was encouraged that all people, not just the educated, not just the scholars, but even the plowmen, should be able to have access to these things and read them. So the copies of the Bible were mass-produced. Something else emerged during this period of the Renaissance, and that was a strong spirit of nationalism people began to recognize, as they had access to other people, that they were different from each other. And there was a rise of a spirit of naturalism, a nationalism. And this particularly took root in England. As I said, the English had always been different. But now, as they're gaining access to these scholars who are coming from the East and these new ideas, as they're beginning to see that the church in Rome has been corrupted, they began to pride themselves in the fact that they're different. They don't want to be like everybody else. They like the idea that they are different from others. So the Renaissance, what we call the Renaissance, is going to pave the way for one of the great movements in the history of the world that would forever change not only the Western church, but the church in general. And that, of course, is the Protestant Reformation. But... Before we get to the Protestant Reformation, to Martin Luther, John Calvin, Martin Bootser, and all of those wonderful characters, we first have to deal 
with the days of our lives. <laughs> and the days of our lives have to do with this man. His name is Arthur Tudor. He is the eldest son, he's the Prince of Wales, and the eldest son of King Henry VII of England. He is 14 years old. And his father arranges a political alliance, which is going to be cemented by means of marriage. Henry VII was interested in a political alliance with the king of Aragon, which is a portion of Spain. And so he betrothes his son, 14 years old, to this woman. Her name is Catherine of Aragon. Now, even if you've never heard of Arthur Tudor, the man who could have potentially been the real King Arthur, you have heard of Catherine of Aragon, probably. So these two are engaged to be married, but something happens. Arthur, 15 years of age, dies. The original diagnosis was something called sweating sickness broke out in some sort of a fever. Who knows what it would have been in that time period, but he dies, which means that this potential political alliance is in danger of crumbling because Catherine is a young woman. She's not going to remain a widow, mourning the loss of this man who never actually became the king. She's going to get married off to somebody else. But Henry VII wants to make sure that this political alliance is sealed. And he still has another son. And so he persuades that second son, this man, who I know you're familiar with, Henry VIII, to marry his brother's wife. How many of you think that would be an interesting prospect? <laughs> and so Henry does. Now, Catherine is some years his senior. But she's attractive. She's wealthy. She's cultured. She'd grown up on the continent. She, she's multilingual. Henry himself is a bright young man, and he finds her company very alluring. And he falls madly in love with Catherine. But he knows that he is under tremendous pressure to produce an heir. In those days, it was absolutely essential that you produced the typical heir and spare because you wanted your dynasty to continue on. And in those days, the belief was that the only one who could rule with any kind of authority, this was a very male-centered age, you had to produce a son. It was as simple as that. Now, that's ironic when you consider the fact that most of England's greatest monarchs have been women. I mean, think about that. Elizabeth I, Victoria, Elizabeth II. But in those days, you had to produce a male. It was believed that if a woman sat on the throne, she would be weak. She would be threatened. She would not be able to control the kingdom. And so Henry VII is putting tremendous pressure on his son, Henry VIII, to produce an heir. And this becomes all the greater when Henry VII dies and Henry VIII ascends the throne. And there are a number of pregnancies, but nothing seems to work, and they are certainly not producing a male. And Henry VIII gets into his mind that the reason is because he has violated a biblical mandate, that he has taken his brother's wife. 
And so he feels that he's under the curse of God. That, that's his real concern. And so he believes that the best thing that he can do is end this marriage, which is in violation of what he considers to be a scriptural mandate. So he wants to get rid of Catherine of Aragon. Now, he doesn't want to have her beheaded or anything like that. I know we always think, oh, Henry had all of his wives beheaded. That was not the case. He actually loved this woman, but he knew that the marriage, as far as producing an heir, was going nowhere. And so what he wanted to do was to get an annulment, not divorce her, get an annulment, have the marriage declared invalid. It's the same thing as saying it never really actually occurred. And he wanted to marry this woman, the other Bolin girl, the Bolin girl, as a matter of fact. And that's what he wanted to do. Now, normally in this day, the only thing that would have been required is that Henry would have appealed to the Pope at this time. And the Pope was Clement VII. And everybody would have expected that Clement would have understand the circumstances. He wants, he's as much concerned with these political alliances as anybody, he wants to somehow cement the church. And these are all Christian monarchs as far as he's concerned. So under normal circumstances, Henry VIII could have appealed to Clement VII for an annulment from Catherine of Aragon so that he could marry Anne Boleyn and perhaps produce. Because let's face it, if England is unstable, the church in England is unstable. So everybody expected that Clement was going to grant the annulment. That's why I say this is the days of our lives. This is like a soap opera. But something happens. Catherine, as I said, was Catherine of Aragon. Her father had been the king of Aragon, a portion of Spain. Spain has now been united in one kingdom, Castile and Aragon. And it is now under the control of a very powerful man. Catherine of Aragon's nephew. And his name is Charles V. He is the king of Spain. He is also the Holy Roman Emperor, which is to say that he is the man who is responsible for providing financial and military assistance to the papal see. Catherine calls on her nephew and says, don't let this annulment go through. It's going to bring disrepute upon the family. I've already lost one husband. Now this one wants to get rid of me. What will become of us? Our name will be sullied. So what does Charles V do? Charles V tells Clement VII, the Pope, that if you grant this annulment, I will withdraw all of my support and protection from the papal see. And the Pope realizes he's in a difficult spot. As much as he wants stability in England, as I said, England is a long way off. His more immediate concern is right there. Spain is close by. And so, because of pressure from the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope refuses to grant the annulment. Now, that's the background. How does Henry VIII see this? Henry VIII sees this as a foreign monarch interfering in his realm. England and his dynasty is only secure if he has a male heir. He can't get a male heir because he's married to Catherine of Aragon. 
All he needs is an annulment, but he can't get the annulment because the king of Spain is calling the shots. You see how complex it is? It's all about politics. You think politics are complicated today? Imagine in those days. That's the real situation. That's the real reason why Henry VIII wanted an annulment. That's the real reason why he would ultimately split from Rome. It's not just because he liked one woman over another woman. It's because of the politics of the situation. He had to produce a male heir. He could not do so. And the one man that he saw standing in the way was not the Pope. It was Charles V. And yet, if he had an affair with Anne, without having been properly married to her, the heir would be regarded as illegitimate. And he had to produce a legitimate heir. And so what does Henry do? Well, as we all know, although the story is far more complicated than this, Henry acts. The most powerful ecclesiastical figure in England at this time who was standing in the way. It originally had been an ally for Henry, but then it turned against Henry was Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey died. So the Pope's represented in England is gone. That's good news for Henry and his marital problems. Second figure that dies is the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Wareham. He dies and 1532, two years later. So now the two most powerful ecclesiastical figures who had stood against Henry are gone. So what does he do? He seizes the opportunity. He appoints Thomas Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533. And he appoints Cranmer because he knows Cranmer is sympathetic to his plight. And so he asked Cranmer for some sort of solution through this morass. And Cranmer suggests that what Henry ought to do is not appeal to the magisterium of the church, the College of Cardinals, appeal to the academy. Appeal to the biblical scholars. After all, the the Bible, we've been saying all along, Cranmer said, he's been thinking about the Reformation, he's been reading about Luther and so forth. He said, who is the Pope to tell you how you live your realm? How How you govern here? The scriptures are the ultimate authority. Why don't you appeal to the academy? And that's exactly what Henry did. He appealed to the great universities. And one of the things that's interesting about the Reformation in England, we'll get to this later, is that the Reformation in England is a clergy-led movement. That's not the case on the continent. The Reformation on the continent is led primarily by lay people. Now, we know Luther was a monk, but for the most part, the people that backed it, the people that pushed the Reformation on the continent were laity. But in England, it was different. It was the scholars. It was people like Wycliffe who were students at Oxford University. It was people like Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley. These were great doctors of the church. And so he appeals to the universities and eight major universities in England back Henry's position. And they produce powerful arguments. And so what Henry begins at this point is a program of intimidation with the clergy. All of a sudden... No church laws can be passed or changed without royal consent. No appeal to the Pope anymore. Then Henry does the unthinkable. He declares himself the supreme head of the Church of England. 
and he persuades Parliament. Now you'll notice he's going through the politics of it all. He's going through the systems of government. Parliament forbids clergy from appealing to the Pope for relief. And with that, what he has done is he has isolated the church in England. He has, in effect, separated it completely from Rome. Now, it's important to understand this. Henry, while he has now separated himself from the authority of Rome, does not change the church in England in terms of its theology. It is still Roman Catholic in everything but name. Priests are still required to be celibate. The Mass is still said in Latin. They're still teaching the doctrine of transubstantiation. You still have to go to confession. You still can buy indulgences. You you can still say chancery masses for the dead and so forth. All of these things remain in place. The only thing that Henry changed was the authority of the church. And the only reason he changed the authority of the church was so that he could get that annulment, get that divorce, and marry the queen who could produce for him the male heir that he needed in order to have stability in England. So as they say, the real story is always far more complicated than we would imagine. I'll say this. This is the last thing until we come back next week. One of the things to remember about Henry VIII was he was actually a very devout Catholic. He went to Mass on a daily basis. I think we have this picture of him if you've watched any of the Tudors on television, which, by the way, I do not recommend that you do. (laughs) But we get this impression that Henry was this sort of corrupt man. He was actually a brilliant young man, very bright, in his early days, very athletic, very handsome, very scholarly, and he had actually written a paper against the Reformation and against Martin Luther a defense of the seven sacraments of the church. And it was such a powerful argument that the Pope actually awarded him a title. You know what Henry was awarded as a title? By the Pope. The title Defender of the Faith. By the Pope. Defender of the Faith because he was defending the Catholic faith. Incidentally, that title is still held by British monarchs to this day. That's a British coin. If any of you have any British coins at home, pull them out. They'll all have the face of the monarch on it, in this case, Elizabeth II. And you'll notice that there are two initials there after Regina, Queen, F.D. That's what it represents, defender of the faith. In this case, Elizabeth, it's a defender of the Protestant faith, but the title was given to Henry as a defender of the Catholic faith. So Henry had no desire whatsoever to change the church, and he would not let the church be changed. He was still opposed to the precepts and the principles of the Reformation. The only thing he wanted was the heir and the spare. But we all know that the Reformation did come to England. It would come like a shockwave through the British Isles. How did that happen? How is it that you and I, sitting here today as Anglicans, are Protestants and not Catholics with allegiance to the Pope? Well, next week, come back (laughs) and hear the rest of the story. Let's close with a word of prayer.
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are the Lord of history and that even the affairs and events of men and women are ultimately subject to your sovereign power. Lord, there was a great deal of corruption in the life of the church in the Middle Ages, but we thank you that in times like that you always raise up one voice, one voice who is calling out for reform, calling out for a return to the faith once delivered to the saints. So we thank you for people like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and many others. But today we give you thanks for the saints of England, those who have endured great trial that the Anglican tradition of the church with its unique perspective might be passed on from one generation to the next, right on down to this congregation here at St. Philip's. We pray that we may be great stewards of this tradition, that we might understand it better, that we might appreciate it more fully, and that we might be more effective in proclaiming Jesus Christ in these troubled and challenging times. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.